Jerry's remarks to the posterity. Our, our guest tonight is an old friend of ours. I, I don't know how many times he's spoken to the Civil War, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. I've heard him a number of times. Uh, matter of fact, I believe at one time he was even the dues-paying member, so the dues went up to $5. <laughs> <laughs> All of you know Harry by reputation. You know the books he has written. Some of them he wished he hadn't written. <laughs> Matter of fact, he's even working on something now that I'm sure you'll all buy, The History of Huey Long, which will be out pretty soon. <laughs> and if you think that takes courage to write The History of Huey Long in Louisiana, this guy's got it because he's a Yankee in Louisiana and makes a business out of it. <laughs> Last night, the speaker introducing him, uh, tracing his, uh, his uh, track from where he came from at Vinegar Hill, Illinois, I'm sure he knows where Vinegar Hill is. I do. <laughs> I'll bet you don't know where Hazel Green, Wisconsin is, because that's where he went next. <laughs> and then to a lot of places, they call it then Plantville School of Mines. So you can see the background he's got here. Isn't it the same thing? No. Oh, all right. And then, of course, where he learned all he, he's ever written at the University of Wisconsin. And then down at Louisiana State. And he got a rather florid introduction last night. And when he got all through, Harry reminded the... Uh, the president of the Madison Roundtable, that he had forgotten to tell the audience about what he was going to speak. <laughs> and so Harry had to explain what the topic was. Well, last night, or this morning, my wife asked me, she says, now the, the reporters are going to call up and ask us who our house guests are, and they're going to want to know what he talked about last night. Well, I says, didn't you hear him last night? She says, yeah, but what was it all about? <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't know, and I'm sure I don't know. So I'm going to let that up to Harry. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, gentlemen, uh, let me say, uh, first of all, it's uh, uh, very good to be back uh, facing this uh, gentle, kindly audience again. Uh, I always seem to pick a bad time to appear here. I think the first time I appeared was... Um, when I made a speech attacking uh, Douglas Southall Freeman right after you'd been to his house for a party or something like that. <laughs> uh, when, the, uh, when Mr. Slechter wrote me last year asking me if I could come up, uh, he said, do you have any new speeches? And I said, yeah. Uh, I got one that will irritate all Civil War fans who have a favorite general. Uh, it'll irritate every neo-Confederate and it will drive reasonable and restrained people like Otto Eisenschimmel and Monroe Cockrell into a blind, unreasoning rage. Uh, he said, fine, come on up. I'll see they get in the front row. Uh, I, uh, ordinarily, when a, a man uh, would get up and make these snide remarks that uh, Jerry has made about me, I would reply in some form, but, but I'm not because I, I owe him an apology. Uh, last night in my address, I suddenly turned on him and attacked him by name uh, as a partisan of John B. Hood. 
and held him up in front of the whole audience as having an idiotic attitude like that. Um, later at his house, uh, uh, having non-alcoholic drinks, he said to me, uh, uh, aren't, aren't you mixed up about something that I ever got up and attacked you about John B. Hood? And I said, no. Uh, I said arrogantly at some round table, I know you're that uh, bumptious, aggressive, offensive person who got up and made an attack on me about John B. Hood. And I walk in there tonight and I realized I was confused. It was Lloyd Miller. Of course. <laughs> uh, uh, pardonable confusion, of course. Uh, this uh, address tonight on the military leadership of the North and the South, uh, incidentally, is an attempt to uh, uh, try and find out why the Civil War generals were what, th what they were, why they were what they were. And uh, if this seems like a, a subject maybe that uh, a civilian shouldn't get into, uh, I think we can remember that um, story I like very much told by Sir John Kennedy in his book on... Uh, uh, the last war in which he was uh, in General Eisenhower's headquarters and Eisenhower was uh, uh, complaining uh, about uh, political interference with his strategy and some staff officer calmed him by saying, well now General, uh, we have to remember uh, that ever since the beginning of antiquity uh, there have been two subjects on which amateurs have been authorities, strategy and prostitution. Uh, Mr. Slechter referred to the fact that uh, uh, I made a career out of being a Yankee in the Deep South, a professional outsider, uh, and I think that's true. Uh, when uh, General Eisenhower appointed his uh, Centennial Commission, and of ten members had one person below the Mason-Dixon line on it, which wasn't a very bright move, but about par for the course. Uh, <laughs> uh, one woman in Baton Rouge was so enraged that I wasn't on it that she wrote President Eisenhower a letter of protest uh, that I wasn't on it to present the Confederate point of view and sent me a copy of the letter. And she wrote on the margin, uh, Dr. Williams, the president, probably will never see this, but some damn carpetbagger might. <laughs> Several nights later, my wife and I were out at a restaurant and saw this lady and her husband eating, and she said, my wife said, there's your friend Mrs. Sowens over there, if you want to go over and thank her. And so I went over and said, uh, you know, Mrs. Sowens, I really thank you for your efforts in my behalf. Um, her husband, with several sheets in the wind, got up and put his arm around me and said, uh, doctor, he said, you know, we should have won that war. Uh, he said, we were smarter than they were. And in all sincerity, I said, you're right, we were smarter than they were. <laughs> now, I'm uh, uh, glad that Mr. Selected did as I told him to do, and uh, uh, note that I'm working on a life of Huey Long. Uh, people say to me, all of your other books have been on the Civil War. Uh, why the change? And, of course, the obvious answer is that when it's published, it may start a civil war in Louisiana. <laughs> uh, I think I've even got a, a beginning for it. There's nothing like having a beginning for a book before you begin to write it. And uh, this is concerned with uh, uh, the economic background of the Long family. You know, these politicians uh, uh, like to overdo their log cabin origins, uh, poorer than they really were. And Huey Long was no exception. 
It said the first time that he spoke in South Louisiana, where he used to make a series of speeches, uh, the local pol politician who had him in charge said, Now, Huey, um, you're going to speak in South Louisiana today. You're from North Louisiana, and you want to remember one thing. We got a lot of Catholics down here, a lot of Catholic voters. And Huey said, Yeah, I know. And all that day, in speech after speech, Huey Long would begin by saying, When I was a boy, I'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'd hitch our old horse up to the buggy, and I'd take my Catholic grandparents to Mass. <laughs> I'd bring them home, and at 10 o'clock, I'd hitch our old horse up to the buggy again, and I'd take my Baptist grandparents to church. Well, that had a good effect, and on the way back to Baton Rouge, the local politician said admiringly, uh, Huey, you've been holding out on us. We didn't know you had any Catholic grandparents. And Huey said, don't be a damn fool. We didn't even have a horse. <laughs> now, uh, I I'm going to have to apologize uh, uh, to you, as I, I think I may have done at Jackson, and say that... Uh, I'm going to have to read this address tonight, or semi-read it, which I don't like to do, uh, but it does happen to be uh, written in the form of a manuscript. And although I would much prefer to talk from notes, I'm, I'm going to have to read it, but I'll uh, try and not make it sound too red-like. Uh, generals and their art and their accomplishments have not been universally admired throughout the course of history. Uh, indeed, there have been some who have thrown the snare at even the successful captains of their time. Four centuries before Christ, Sophocles, as aware of the tragedy of war as he was of the tragedy of life, in attempting to summarize what a general was, said, it is the merit of a general to impart good news and to conceal the bad. And the Duke of Wellington, who certainly should have known what he was talking about from experience, said, nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. Now, it's, it's not necessary to remind an audience like this that in the Civil War, generals were not considered sacred. In fact, they were considered as legitimate targets for anybody who had a jibe to fling. For example, Senator Wigfall of Texas, who usually reserved his not inconsiderable talent for savage humor, uh, which he usually exercised on the Davis administration, this time he was using it on the military, said of John B. Hood, that young man had a fine career before him until Jeff Davis undertook to make of him what the good Lord had not done to make a great general out of him. <laughs> and one can understand Assistant Secretary of War Peter H. Watson's irritation when on the eve of Second Manassas, the War Department could not find such an important officer as Corps Commander Joe Hooker, while we also noting Watson's patronizing attitude toward all generals in a letter he wrote to General Haupt, the transportation director, stating that an intensive search was being conducted for Hooker in the bar of Willard's Hotel. <laughs> and Watson added, be as patient as possible with the generals. Some of them will trouble you more than they will the enemy. <laughs> And yet in the final analysis, as we all know, it is the general who is the decisive factor in battle. Uh, at least that is true up to our own time when war has become so big and dispersed that it may be said to be managed rather than commanded.
Napoleon put it well when he said, perhaps with some exaggeration, the personality of the general is indispensable. He is the head, he is the all of an army. The Gauls were not conquered by the Roman legions, but by Caesar. It was not before the Carthaginian soldiers that Rome was made to tremble, but before Hannibal. It was not the Macedonian phalanx which penetrated to India, but Alexander. It was not the French army which reached the Vaser and the Inn, it was Turin. Prussia was not defended for seven years against the three most formidable European powers by the Prussian soldiers, but by Frederick the Great. And this quotation by Napoleon may serve to remind us of another truth about war and generals that is often forgotten. And that is that tactics is often a more decisive factor than strategy. The commander who has suffered a strategic reverse, Cyril Falls emphasizes, may remedy everything by a tactical success. Whereas for a tactical reverse, there may be no remedy whatsoever. And Cyril Falls adds, it is remarkable how many people exert themselves and go through contortions to prove that battles and wars are won by any means except that by which they are most commonly won, which is by fighting. And these are often the people who are accorded the most attention. If then the general is so important in war, we are justified in asking, what are the qualities that make a general great? or even just good. And we may, with reason, look for some clues to the answers in the writings of some of the great generals themselves. But first of all, it may be helpful to list some qualities that although they may be highly meritorious and desirable, are not sufficient in themselves to produce greatness. Experience alone is not enough. Said Frederick the Great, a mule may have made 20 campaigns under Prince Eugene and not be a better tactician for all that. Nor are education and intelligence the touchstones to measure a great general. Marshall Sachs went so far as to say, unless a man is born with a talent for war, he will never be other than a mediocre general. And Marmont, while noting that all the great soldiers had possessed the highest faculties of mind, emphasize that they also had something that was more important, and Marmon called it character. Now what these men are trying to say when they use the word character, I think, is this, that a commander has to have in his makeup a mental strength and a moral power that enables him to dominate whatever event or crisis may emerge on the field of battle. Napoleon stated the case exactly. He said the first quality of a general-in-chief is to have a cool head which receives exact impressions of things, which never gets heated, which never allows itself to be dazzled or intoxicated by good or bad news. Now, anybody who knows the Civil War can easily tick off a number of generals who fit exactly the pattern described next by Napoleon. He said, there are certain men who on account of their moral and physical constitution paint mental pictures out of everything. However exalted be their reason, their will, their courage, and whatever good qualities they may possess, nature has not fitted them to command armies nor to direct great operations of war. And Clausewitz, 
the German student of war said the same thing in a slightly different way. Clausewitz said, <coughs> there are decisive moments in war when things no longer move themselves, when the general's own army begins to offer resistance. And this is what Clausewitz called the inertia of war. And he said, to overcome this resistance, the commander must have, quote, a great force of will. The whole inertia of war comes to rest on his will and only the spark of his own purpose and spirit can throw it off. Now this quality, natural quality of toughness of fiber is especially important in measuring civil war generalship because the civil war generals were products of the same educational system and the same military background. As far as technique was concerned, they started equal and differed only in matters of mind and character. It has been well said, to achieve a canai, a Hannibal is needed on the one hand and a Tarantius barrel on the other. And for our war, we can add, to achieve a second Manassas, a Lee is needed on the one side and a John Pope on the other. When Marshal Sachs enumerated the attributes of a general, he named these usual qualities of intelligence and courage, and then he added another that is not often considered in historical evaluations of generalship, namely the factor of health. Now, a comparison of the age levels of leading southern and northern officers in 1861 is instructive. Now, if we take the men who came to command armies, we note, say, that for the South, Albert Sidney Johnston was 58, Joe Johnston and Lee were 54, Pemberton 47, Bragg 44, and so forth. Of the Union Army commanders, Hooker was 47, Halleck and Meade 46, Thomas 45, Buell 43, and so forth. I won't go through all of them. Now, youth was clearly on the side of the Union. But obviously, it cannot be said that the generals in one particular age group did any better or any worse than those in another. Nevertheless, when Grant thought about the war in the years after 1865, he inclined to place a high premium on the qualities of youth, health, and energy and doubted that a general over 50 should be given field command, which I would uh, suspect would be the attitude of the United States Army today. And Grant recalled that during the war, he had had the power to endure anything. And in this connection, we may note that during the Virginia campaign of 1864, Lee was sick 11 of 44 days, while Grant was not indisposed for one. The Civil War was preeminently a West Pointer's fight. Of the 60 biggest battles, West Point graduates commanded both armies in 55, and in the remaining five, a West Pointer commanded one of the opposing armies. What were they like then in 1861, the men who would direct the blue and gray armies? How well trained were they for war? What intellectual influences had formed their concepts of war and battle? Well, a glance at the West Point curriculum reveals that it was heavy on the side of engineering, tactics, and administration. The products of the academy came out with a good grounding in what may be termed the routine of military science. But it should be emphasized that none of the West Point, West Point graduates before 1861 
had any actual experience in directing troops in numbers. Not a one had controlled a la as large a unit as a brigade, and only a few had handled a regiment. Except for a handful of officers who had visited Europe, the men who would lead the Civil War armies had never seen an army larger than the 14,000 men of Scott or Taylor in the Mexican War. One subject was not emphasized at West Point, and that was strategy, or the study of the higher art of war. Now, the comparative subordination of strategy at West Point may be explained by the youth of the cadets and the feeling of the school's directors that it was more important to teach these young boys uh, a basic knowledge of tactics and administration. Still, some strategy was taught at the academy, and many of the graduates enlarged their knowledge of strategy by reading books on military history while stationed at army posts. The strategy that was presented at the post, at the point, and that was studied by interested graduates came from a common source and had a common pattern. It was the product of the brilliant Swiss officer who had served with Napoleon, Antoine Henri Jomini, J-O-M-I-N-I, universally regarded as the foremost writer on the theory of war in the first half of the 19th century. Every West Point general in the war had been exposed to Jomini's ideas, either directly by reading his writings or abridgments of them, or by hearing them in the classroom, or by reading the works of Jomini's disciples, of whom more later. The influence of Jomini on the Civil War was profound and it must be taken into account in any evaluation of Civil War generalship. There is little exaggeration in General Hiddle's statement that many a Civil War general went into battle with a sword in one hand and Jomini's summary of the art of war in another. Now, obviously, in a paper of this length, it is impossible to attempt more than a summary of Jomini's ideas. Essentially, what he was trying to do was to introduce rationality and system into the study of war. He believed that in war, rules prevailed as much as in other areas of human activity and that generals should follow these rules. And he set himself to formulate a set of basic principles of strategy for commanders, supposedly using as his examples the campaigns of Napoleon. Now, perhaps the best way to get at Jomini is to look at his four basic principles. Most Civil War generals could repeat these principles by heart. One, the commander should endeavor by strategic measures to bring the major part of his forces successively to bear on the decisive areas of the theater of war while menacing the enemy's communications without endangering his own. And second, and this was the big one, he should maneuver in such a way as to engage the masses of his forces against fractions of the enemy, the principle of mass or concentration. And three, he should endeavor by tactical measures to bring his masses to bear on the decisive area of the battlefield. And four, he should not, not only bring his masses to bear on the decisive point, but he should put them in speedily and rapidly. 
Now, I don't think we have to say that much of this is not new. In fact, you can find some of Jomini's ideas in the writings of the ancient Greeks. I mean, the idea of concentrating your force at the decisive point uh, of the battlefield. But I think we should note this, that usually Jomini envisioned the decisive point as being the point where the enemy was weakest. Now, this is often true in war, but not always. And uh, as, for example, the American invasion of France, the cross-channel attack in World War II, which was an attack at the decisive point of the enemy, but at his strongest point. To explain how his principles should be applied in war, Germany worked out an elaborate doctrine based on geometrical formations. He loved diagrams, and he devised 12 model plans of battles. And Civil War generals often tried to reproduce on the field some of Jomini's diagrams. For example, McClellan's plan of attack at Antietam, from right to center to left, was based on one of Jomini's 12 plans. In all of Jomini's plans, there was a theater of operations, a base of operations, and a zone of operations. The smart commander chose a line of operations that would enable him to dominate three sides of the rectangular zone. Now note that three sides. Once he had done this, the enemy would have to face, would face certain defeat unless he retired. Unless he retired. Jomini talked much about concentric maneuver, interior and exterior lines, being the first military theorist to emphasize the advantage of interior lines over exterior lines. Now sometimes, especially when he discussed the advantage of the offensive, and he always stressed the offensive, Germany seemed to come close to the ideas of another great military writer of the first half of the 19th century, the German Clausewitz, whose works, incidentally, had not been translated into English any place in the United States by 1860. Clausewitz, who, whose strategy has sometimes been called the strategy of annihilation. But a closer reading of Germany's writings reveal that he and Clausewitz were actually far apart. Because, although Germany spoke admiringly of the hard blow followed by the energetic pursuit, his line of operation strategy, dominating three sides of a rectangular zone, allowed the enemy the option of retiring. You see? In reality, Germany thought that the primary objectives in war were places rather than armies. He affected to be the advocate of the new Napoleonic ways of war, but actually he looked back instead of forward. It has been rightly said of Germany, by his emphasis on lines of operation, he returned to the 18th century method of approaching the study of war as a geometric exercise. In emphasizing the continuance of traditional features, he missed the things that were new. There can be no doubt that this interpreter of Napoleonic warfare actually set military thought back into the 18th century, an approach which the professional soldiers of the Civil War period found comfortable and safe. Now, Germany himself confessed that he did not like the destructiveness of the warfare of his own time. He said, I acknowledge that my prejudices 
are in favor of the good old times when the French and English guards courteously invited each other to fire first as at Fontenoy. He said that he preferred, quote, chivalric war to organized assassination. And he especially deplored what he called wars of opinion, or as we would say today, wars of ideas. And Germany thought that war was, as it should be, most proper and polite when it was directed by professional soldiers and fought by professional armies for limited objectives. Now, all this, of course, is recognizable as good 18th century doctrine. This could be Marshall Sachs saying, I do not favor pitched battles, and I am convinced that a skillful general can make war all of his life without being forced into one. 18th century warfare was leisurely, and its ends were limited. It stressed maneuver rather than battle, as was natural in an age when professional armies were so expensive to raise and maintain that they could not be risked unless victory was reasonably certain. An 18th century war was conducted with a measure of humanity that caused Chesterfield to say in high disgust, war is pusillanimously carried on in this degenerate age, quarter is given, towns are taken, and people spared, and even in a storm, a woman can hardly hope for the benefit of a rape. <laughs> now, most important of all in the 18th century, war was regarded as a kind of an exercise to be carried on by a game, to be carried on by professional soldiers without very much relation to a political objective. The 18th century kings may have had limited objectives when they made war, but the soldiers who conducted their, the wars for them thought of war largely as a professional game that had no relation to the policy for which the country went to war. Many West Pointers, McClellan, Lee, Sherman, Beauregard, and others, expressed their admiration of Jomini in extravagant terms. Halleck devoted years to translating Jomini's works, and his own book on the elements of war was only a rehash of Jomini, in fact, in parts, a direct steal. Hardy's manual on tactics reflected Jominian ideas. But the American, who did more than any other to popularize Jomini, was Dennis Hart Mahan, father of the later admiral, who began teaching at West Point in 1824 and who influenced a whole generation of soldiers. Now, he interpreted Jomini in the classroom, and in the 1840s, he brought out a work of his own on the art of war called Outpost that was largely based on Jominian ideas. Most of the Civil War generals had been Mahan's pupils, and those who had not, like Lee, were exposed to his ideas through knowing him personally or through reading his book. Probably no man had a more direct influence on the thinking of the Civil War generals than Dennis Hart Mahan. Now, of course, he did little more than to reproduce Germany's ideas. He talked about the principle of mass concentration, defeating the enemy's fractions, and so forth. But it should be emphasized that his big point, the one he dwelled on most, was the offensive executed with tremendous celerity of movement. Mahan always talked about the advantage of rapidity in warfare. And then he said there was one operation that could change the face of a war, 
And, and this passage, of course, makes us think immediately of Lee and Jackson. Mahan said, when one's own territory was invaded, the commander should invade the territory of the enemy. This is the mark of true genius. Jominian strategy, as interpreted by Mahan then, was the mass offensive waged on the battlefield, probably with utmost violence, but only on the battlefield. It cannot be sufficiently emphasized that Mahan, like Jomini, made no connection between war and technology or war and political objectives. War was still an exercise carried on by professionals. War and statecraft were separate things. Now, before we consider the direct influence of Jominian thought on Civil War generals, it may be helpful in clearing the way, and this is the part that's supposed to get everybody mad here, to dispose of a number of generals who do not meet the criteria of greatness or even of competence. And uh, this uh, brutal disposal will be performed by some very sweeping generalizations uh, delivered here with great arrogance of spirit. Uh, the, the following generals fall short of the mark either because they are too thorough Geminians or because they lack the qualities of mind and character found in the great captains of war. Of the generals who commanded armies, we can say that the following had such grave shortcomings that either they were not qualified to command, I'm talking about field command, or that they can be classified as no better than average soldiers. On the Union side, McClellan, Burnside, Hooker, Meade, Buell, Halleck, and Rosecrans. On the Confederate side, Albert, Sidney, Johnson, Beauregard, Bragg, Joe Johnson, and Kirby Smith. McClellan will be discussed later, but here we may anticipate by saying that he did not have the temperament required for command. Burnside did not have the mentality. <laughs> Hooker was a fair strategist, but he lacked iron and also the imagination to control troops not within his physical vision. Meade was a good routine soldier, but no more, and was afflicted with a defensive psychosis. Buell was a duplicate of McClellan without any color. <laughs> Halleck was an unoriginal scholar and an excellent staff officer who should never have taken the field. Rosecrans had strategic ability, but no poise or balance. His crack up at Chickamauga is a perfect example of Napoleon's general who paints the wrong kind of mental picture. Albert Sidney Johnston died before he could prove himself, but nothing that he did before his death makes us think that he was anything but a gallant troop commander. Beauregard probably was developing into a competent commander by the time of Shiloh, but his failure to win that battle plus his personality faults caused him to be exiled to minor posts. Bragg, the general of the lost opportunity, was a good deal like Hooker. He created favorable situations but lacked the determination to carry through his purpose, he did not have the will to overcome the inertia of war. Kirby Smith made a promising start, but seemed to shrink under the responsibility of command and finally disappeared into the backwash of the Trans-Mississippi Theater. The stature of Joe Johnston probably will be argued as long as there are Civil War fans to talk, but surely we can take his measure by his decision in the Georgia campaign to withdraw from a position near Cassville that he termed, quote, the best that I saw occupied during the war merely because his corps generals advised retiring. A great general, we feel, would have delivered the attack that Johnston originally planned to make. Johnston undoubtedly had real ability, but he never did much with it. It is reasonable to expect that a general 
who has sustained opportunities will sometimes once achieve something decisive. Johnston certainly had the opportunities, but there is no decisive success on his record. I may say that passage drives Ned Julian mad. Uh, of the lesser generals, it is fair to say that Longstreet and Jackson were outstanding corps leaders, probably the best in the war, but that neither gave much evidence of being able to go higher. Longstreet failed in independent command. Jackson performed brilliantly as commander of a small army, but probably lacked the administrative ability to handle a large one. Probably would have had all his generals under arrest. Uh, uh, in addition, he was, he was never fairly tested against first-rate opposition. Banks, Fremont, and Milroy. Thomas and Hancock stand out among Union Corps generals. Thomas also commanded an army, but his skills were of a particular order and could be exercised only in a particular situation. He excelled in the counterattack delivered from strength. Stuart, Sheridan, Forrest, and Wilson were fine cavalry leaders, but we cannot say with surety that they could have been anything else. Don't misunderstand me. I'm all for playing around with these ideas of could so-and-so have commanded an army. I think we ought to, that they're instructive. But I think we also ought to always remember that we just can't say for sure that because Forrest, for example, was a fine cavalry commander, that he would have made a fine army commander. On the one occasion when Sheridan directed an army, he displayed unusual ability to handle combined arms, infantry, cavalry, and artillery, but he enjoyed such a preponderant advantage in numbers as to be almost decisive. He was never really subjected to the inertia of war. Really, when you come down to it, it seems to me, in the last analysis, the only Civil War generals who deserve to be ranked as great are Lee for the South and Grant and Sherman for the North. We can now turn to an examination of the influence of Germanian 18th century military thought on Civil War generalship. First, directing our attention at the first northern generals with whom Abraham Lincoln had a deal. And when we look at these first generals of Lincoln's, it is immediately and painfully evident that in the first of the total wars, these men were ruled by traditional concepts of warfare. The Civil War was undoubtedly a rough, no-holes-barred affair, a bloody and brutal struggle. And yet Lincoln's first generals proposed to conduct it in accordance with the standards and the strategy of an earlier and easier military age. They saw places as objectives rather than the armies of the enemies. They hoped to accomplish their objectives by maneuvering rather than by fighting. McClellan boasted that the brightest chaplets in my history were Manassas and Yorktown, both occupied after the Confederates had departed because he had seized them, quote, by pure military skill and without the loss of life. That's 18th century military thought. And as we know, when he had to lose lives, McClellan was deeply affected. I think you know about the letter he wrote his wife when he wandered over the battlefield at Fair Oaks and saw the bodies of the dead and wounded there. And he wrote to her and said, uh, if this is war, it loses all of its charms for me. Now, the idea of a general mooning around the battlefield, worrying about the dead and wounded, may do credit to his humanity. It may seem strange to the modern mind, but Germany would have understood what McClellan was talking about. Don Carlos Buell argued in the spirit of 
18th century military thought that campaigns could be carried out and won without engaging in a single big battle. Only when success was reasonably certain, said Buell, should a general risk battle. And he added, war has a higher objective than that of mere bloodshed. After the Confederates had retired from Corinth, Halleck instructed his subordinates, quote, there is no object in bringing on a battle if this object can be obtained without one. I think by showing a bold front for a day or two, the enemy will continue his retreat, which is all I desire. With an almost arrogant assurance, Lincoln's first generals believed that war was a business to be carried on by professionals without interference from civilians and without political objectives. It is no exaggeration to say that some of the officers saw the war as a kind of game played by experts off in some private sphere that had no connection with the government or society. Rosecrans gave a typical expression of this view when he resisted pressure from Washington to advance before Stones River. And Rosecrans said, I will not move until I am ready. War is a business to be conducted systematically. I believe I understand my business. I will not budge until I am ready. But I think the classic example in this connection is McClellan, the classic example of the mind of the professional soldier. And I'll summarize one example. Lincoln asked McClellan to keep in his army, even in a minor command, General Charles S. Hamilton. And, and Lincoln said there are political as well as military reasons why this should be done. And the minute Lincoln said political reasons, McClellan was ready to bounce Hamilton out of there. Now, without considering, really, whether Hamilton was a good division commander, the mere fact that Lincoln had uttered the word political was enough to horrify McClellan. When McClellan conceived of his Urbana plan, he did not tell Lincoln about it for months. He did not seem to know that it was his job to counsel his political superior on his plans. In the winter of 1861 and 2, Lincoln implored McClellan to make a move, even a small one, to inspire public opinion with the belief that more decisive action was contemplated later. And McClellan said, no, I'm not completely prepared. And the thing that Lincoln could not make McClellan understand was that if no move was made, maybe public opinion would give up the war. There wouldn't be any war. There wouldn't be any McClellan to command an army. McClellan's attitude was that of the professional soldier, when the game is ready, I'll start it. War has no relation to statecraft. Now, Lincoln's early generals also accepted blindly the Jominian doctrine of concentration, which, as they interpreted it, meant one big effort at a time by their own army. One big effort at a time by one army. And I would suspect, without being able to prove it, that one reason for the comparative inaction of many northern generals in the first year of the war was their conviction of this Jominian idea of only one big effort at a time and that they didn't have enough men in their army to make the one big effort. Now, when we examine the psychology of the northern generals, the thought immediately occurs to us that the southern generals are not like this. And inevitably, we say, why? Have the southern generals freed themselves from this dogma, this tradition? Were they developing new ways of war? Well, the answer to both questions is no. The Confederates were, if possible, 
more influenced by Jomini than the Federals. They simply gave a different emphasis to Jomini's thought. Whereas the Federals borrowed from Jomini the idea of places as objectives, the Confederates took from him the principle of the offensive. And moreover, Southern generals were fortunate in that their government did not want to occupy any northern territory, and therefore they could make northern armies instead of places their objectives. And obviously, the influence of Dennis Mahan with his doctrine of the headlong attack is apparent in Confederate strategy, especially as it was employed by Lee. In addition, the poverty of southern resources had the effect of forcing southern generals to think in aggressive terms. They could not afford to wait for the big buildup in men and equipment, but they had to act when they could with what they had. Far from departing from Jomini, the Confederates were the most brilliant <coughs> practitioners of his doctrine. If we look for the successful applications of Jomini's ideas, the objective, the offensive, mass, economy of force, interior lines, we find them most frequently in the Confederate campaigns and particularly in the Virginia theater. And certainly Lee, the Confederacy's best general, was also its greatest Jominian. Now maybe it is because Lee embodied so precisely the spirit of traditional warfare that he has been ranked so high by students of war. Because military writers like generals are likely to be awfully conservative. The English writers who have done so much to form our image of the war, have been especially lavish in their praise of Lee. For example, Cyril Falls writes that Lee was, quote, a master combination of strategist, tactical genius, leader of the highest inspiration and technician in the arts of hastily fortifying defensive positions superbly chosen. And Falls adds he must stand as the supreme figure of this survey of a hundred years of war. And other English writers, Colonel Byrne and others, are almost as extravagant. Now let us concede that many of the tributes to Lee are deserved. He was not all that his admirers have said of him, but he was a large part of it. But let us also note that even his most fervent admirers, when they come to evaluate him as a strategist, have to admit that his abilities were never demonstrated on a larger scale than a theater. Cyril Falls, after this extravagant tribute to Lee, the master strategist, falls on his face when he tries to find an example of Lee's gifts for large-scale strategy. The only example he can find is Lee's redeployment of forces between the Shenandoah Valley and Richmond in the Peninsula Campaign. Lee was undoubtedly a brilliant theater or field commander, a great one, but it remains unproven that he was anything more or be anything more. General Fuller writes of Lee, in spite of all his ability, his heroism, and the heroic efforts of his army, because he would think and work in a corner, taking no notice of the whole, taking no interest in forming policy, he was ultimately cornered and his cause lost. For his preoccupation with the war in Virginia, however, Lee is not to be criticized. He was a product of his culture, and that culture permeated in its every part by the spirit of localism, dictated that his outlook on war should be local. Nevertheless, I think we have to say that his restricted view constituted a tragic command limitation in a modern war. 
and the same limitation applies to Southern generalship as a whole. The Confederates, brilliant and bold, in executing Jominian strategy on the battlefield, never succeeded in lifting their gifts above the theater level. In many respects, Robert E. Lee simply was not a modern-minded general. He probably did not understand the real function of a staff. He certainly failed to put one together. He had an excellent eye for terrain, but his use of maps was almost primitive. He does not seem to have realized the impact of railroads on war, or to realize that railroads made Jomini's doctrine of interior lines largely obsolete. But the most striking lack of modern-mindedness in Lee was his failure to grasp the vital relation between war and statecraft. And here, the great Virginian was truly a Jominian. Almost as much as McClellan, he thought of war as a professional exercise. One of his officers once said admiringly, admiringly, that Lee was too far away soldier to attempt to advise the government on such matters as the defense of Richmond. And late in the war, a cabinet member asked Lee for his opinion on the advisability of moving the capital farther south, and Lee said, that is a political question, and you politicians must determine it. I shall endeavor to take care of the army, and you must make the laws. And yet, what could be a more strategic question than the safety of the capital? Lee attained a position in the Confederacy held by no other man. There was little exaggeration in the statement Mahone made to him late in the war, you are the state. But Lee could never grasp the role that his eminence may have demanded. He could never have said, as William Pitt said, I know that I can save the country and that no one else can. Now, it has been said that Lee never tried to impose his will on the government because of his humility of character, and this may well be true. But it may also be true that he did not know that a commander had any political responsibility. Lincoln's first generals did not understand that war and statecraft were parts of the same piece. But none of the Confederate generals, first or last, last ever grasped this fact about modern war. The most distinguishing feature of Southern generalship is that it did not grow. Lee and other generals were pretty much the same men in 1865 that they had been in 1861. They were good within certain limits in 1861, and they were good in 1865, but within the same limits. They never freed themselves from the influence of traditional dogma. The North, on the other hand, finally brought forward generals who were able to grow and who could employ new ways of war. Even so, doctrinaire a Jominian as Halleck reached the point where he can approve techniques of total war, uh, Sherman's march, for example, that would have horrified the master. But the most outstanding examples of growth and originality among the Northern generals are Grant and Sherman. The qualities of Grant's generalship deserve more analysis than those of Lee, partly because they haven't been sufficiently emphasized, but largely because Grant was a more modern soldier than his rival. Now, first of all, we may note about Grant that he had that quality of character and will that we have said all the great captains had to have, which Lee had too. Perhaps the first military writer to emphasize this trait in Grant was an Englishman, C.F. Atkinson, writing in 1908. And Atkinson said Grant's distinguishing feature as a general was his character, which was controlled by a tremendous will. 
And Atkinson said, with Grant, action was translated from thought to deed by all the force of a tremendous personality. Now, this moral strength of Grant's may be news to a lot of present-day historians, but it was overpoweringly apparent to almost everybody who came into close association with him. Charles Francis Adams, Jr., for example, of a family not lightly given to uttering compliments, said, Grant is really an extraordinary person, although he doesn't look it. And Lincoln said, the great thing about Grant, I take it, is his perfect coolness and persistency of purpose. But the best tribute to Grant's character, as we might expect, was paid by the general who knew him best. In a typical explosive statement to James Harrison Wilson, Sherman said, Wilson, I am a damn sight smarter than Grant. I know a great deal more about war, military history, strategy, and administration, and about everything else than he does. But I tell you where he beats me and where he beats the world. He don't care a damn for what the enemy does out of his sight, but it scares me like hell. And on the eve of the great campaigns of 1864, Sherman wrote to Grant that he considered Grant's strongest feature was his ability to go into battle without hesitation, doubts, or reserve. And characteristically, Sherman added, it was this that made me act with confidence. And in the same letter to Grant, Sherman confessed to Grant that originally he said, I have a reservation about you. And he said, my only points of doubt were as to your knowledge of grand strategy and of books of science and history, but I confess your common sense seems to have supplied all this. Common sense Grant had, and it enabled him to deal with such unjominian phenomena as army correspondence and political generals. Unlike Sherman, Grant accepted the reporters, but he rendered them harmless. Junius Brown of the New York Tribune wrote happily to his editor, General Grant informs us correspondents that he will willingly facilitate us in obtaining all proper information. Then added significantly, however, he is not very communicative. <laughs> Unlike McClellan, who would, who would not accept General Hamilton for political considerations urged by Lincoln, Grant took Mc, John A. McClernand at the president's request. Now, Grant couldn't imagine why Lincoln wanted a command for McClernand, but he assumed there must be some reason important to his civil superior. He put up with McClernand until he found a way to strike him down to which Lincoln could not object. And that episode, I think, showed that Grant realized the vital relationship in modern war between war and policy. It was Grant's common sense that enabled him to rise above the dogmas of traditional warfare. On one occasion, a young officer, thinking to flatter Grant, asked his opinion of Jomini. Grant replied that he had never read the master. He then expressed his own theory of strategy. The art of war, he said, is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, strike at him as hard as you can, and as often as you can, and keep moving on. After the war, Grant discussed more fully his opinion of the value of doctrine. He conceded that military knowledge was highly desirable, but he added, if men make war in slavish observance of rules, they will fail. 
no rules will apply to conditions of war as different as those which exist in Europe and America. War is progressive because all the instruments and elements of war are progressive. He then referred to the movement that had been his most striking departure from the rules, the Vicksburg Campaign. To take Vicksburg by rules would have required a withdrawal to Memphis, the opening of a new line of operations, a whole new plan. But Grant believed that the discouraged condition of Northern opinion would not permit such a conformity to Germanian rules. He said, in a popular war, we had to consider political exigencies. It was this ability of Grant's to grasp the political nature of modern war that marks him as the first of the great modern generals. Now, the question of where to rank Sherman has always troubled military writers. He is obviously not a Jominian, and just as obviously he is not a great battle captain like Grant or Lee. Colonel Byrne points out that never once did Sherman command in a battle where he engaged his whole force and that he never won a resounding victory. Conceding that in the Georgia campaign, Sherman displayed imagination, resource, versatility, and so forth, Byrne still contends that Sherman exhibited two serious failings, that of pursuing a geographical objective rather than a military one, and that of avoiding risk. Now, on the other hand, another British writer, Liddell Hart, says Sherman is the greatest general of the war because more than any other commander, he came to say that the object of strategy is to minimize fight. Now, part of this evaluation of Liddell Hart's can be written off, I think, as an attempt of the British to glorify through Sherman the British strategy of the indirect approach. And yet Liddell Hart is right in saying that Sherman had the fullest grasp of the truth that the resisting power of a modern democracy depends on heavily on the popular will and that this popular will in turn depends on economic security. Sherman, a typical Jominian at the beginning of the war, became its greatest exponent of economic and psychological warfare. Nobody realized more clearly than Sherman what he was doing at the beginning of his destructive march through the heart of the South. Describing to Grant what he meant to do, he said, this may not be war, but rather statesmanship. But at the same time, we must recognize that Sherman's strategy by itself would never have brought the Confederacy down. That end called for a Grant who at the decisive moment would attack the enemy's armed forces. The North was fortunate in finding two generals who between them executed Clausewitz's three objectives of war. To conquer and destroy the enemy's armed forces, to get possession of the material elements of aggression and other sources of existence of the enemy, and to gain public opinion by winning victories that depress the enemy's morale. It remains to touch on the military leadership of the North and the South at its highest levels where strategy was determined at the rival presidents and the command systems they headed. In supreme leadership, the Union was clearly superior. Lincoln was an abler and stronger man than Davis. Now, without going into any detail on this subject, I'll simply summarize it by saying this. From the beginning of the war, Lincoln urged on general after general this strategy. He said, we have superior numbers and we have superior transportation. What we should do is make several simultaneous attacks on the Confederacy. 
If we make several attacks simultaneously, they cannot shift forces on the inside to meet every attack. They'll have to weaken themselves at some point, and then we will make a breakthrough. Now, that is what is in military terminology called a cordon offense, several attacks. And general after general rejected Lincoln's plan. Rejected it because it violated the Jominian idea of one big effort in one theater. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that there may not be times in war when one big effort in one big theater may not be the correct strategy. I am sure there may be. I am also sure that in the Civil War for the North, the correct strategy was to make several simultaneous big attacks, which the North was well capable of mounting. But Lincoln's strategy violated the traditional thought of all the Civil War generals. It violated the Jominian idea of mass and concentration. And it was not until 1864, when U.S. Grant became general-in-chief, that Lincoln's plan of a cordon attack was put into practice. The plan that Grant, as general-in-chief in 1864, placed before Lincoln involved several simultaneous attacks. And before Grant launched that attack, those attacks, he came to explain his plan to Lincoln. And he said, now look, Meade's army is going to move in Virginia against Lee's army. Sherman's army is going to move from near Chattanooga against Johnson's army. And a movement grant plan that never came off. And Banks's army will move from New Orleans uh, into Alabama. And then Grant said to Lincoln, and there will be several minor movements in the Shenandoah Valley and elsewhere. And then he said to Lincoln, these small forces that will be advancing along with the big ones, he said they will help the main attack, they will help the fighting, because just by advancing they will engage the attention of the Confederates and force them to detach a certain number of their men to watch them. And Lincoln, of course, understood exactly what Grant was doing because this was what Lincoln himself had been asking for since the beginning of the war. Now, in this paper, we have dealt much with maxims, with wise military statements, and we may fittingly conclude with one. Lincoln got Grant's point, and he uttered a maxim of his own. This is right after Grant says the smaller forces uh, not fighting will help by advancing. At least for the Civil War, Lincoln's maxim had more validity than anything written by Baron Jomini. I see, said the commander-in-chief, those not skinning can hold a leg. <laughs> May I remind you, gentlemen, that this, these remarks in extended form will be published in the fall area? Yeah. In the fall, by the Louisiana State Press, at, I take it a reasonable stipend of fifteen or twenty-five dollars. <laughs> now, Harry wants wants to be attacked. The only rule we will observe is you may not advance beyond the table. Doctor Eisenhower. Inasmuch as Dr. Williams has challenged me in advance that I will heartily disagree with him 
it behooves me to take the floor for a minute. I'm only sorry that Dr. Williams did so much quoting. Knowing him as well as I do, esteeming him as much as I do, I know that he's got plenty of brains of his own. Why constantly quote so-called authorities? If he quotes authorities, I will quote authorities, and in the end will be where the trial ended that was held before a justice of the peace in southern Illinois. One man came with a big book of uh, authorities and decisions that had been made and made his case. Then his opponent got up and opened a big volume of books and says, now, Your Honor, may I present my authorities? And the judge says, no, whenever I hear both sides of the case, it confuses me. <laughs> I would therefore only quote one authority. And that's generally about Grant. He said, Grant's strategy consists of gathering overwhelming forces. And that, I think, does the whole thing in a nutshell. Outside of that one person, I don't disagree with Williams at all. I think I agree with him, not in all details, but as a whole. I think with him, the same thing about Lee and all the other generals. I disagree most heartily in regard to Grant. You show me, Dr. Williams, what Grant would have done if he had not had overwhelming forces. He fought three battles in which his forces were fairly equal with those of the enemy, both in numbers and in equipment. The first was Belmont. He got beaten, but it was an honorary retirement. The second was Shiloh, and there he pretty near lost his shirt and his army. The third was, in the Vicksburg campaign, after he had crossed the Mississippi, he did brilliantly. From then on, he never had less than twice as many men, three times as much equipment, superiority in equipment in every respect, food, shoes, everything, medical supplies. How can you compare? How can you come to a conclusion? How can you conclude that a 200-pound man is a good fighter if he never meets anything but people that, that men that are weighed 90 pounds, hadn't got enough money to buy himself gym shoes and have no gloves. <laughs> the question is not who will win, but how soon will he win? This is my counter-challenge, gentlemen. I can hardly wait to grab that microphone out of his hand here now. Uh, I think that uh, Otto has raised uh, uh, a, a very important point, uh, a point that uh, deserves the most serious attention of everybody who is interested in, uh, in, in this war and its generalship. And I, I think that Otto is, is, is partly proceeding from a false basis. Now, um, I'm giving credit for one thing, though. Uh, he... Uh, uh, he, he's getting better. Now, last time I heard him talk about Vicksburg, he said this. He said, I concede that Vicksburg was a, a very brilliant campaign. He said, someday I'm going to find out who planned that for him. Uh, uh, I think that when Grant had a fight, say, with equal numbers, smaller numbers, whatever it is, he could do it. Now, I, I don't think that Belmont or Shiloh are particularly significant, significant examples. At Shiloh, 
Grant learned an awfully important military lesson, which was that you can't expect the enemy to do what you want him to do. Now that is a favorite fault of general, a uh, familiar fault of generals in war, that they that they will sit back and make their plan on the assumption the enemy is going to do what they want him to do, that he will attack them at their strongest point. Uh, Charles Grant had been running the Confederates around those rivers, and he thought they were going to wait and attack him, and instead they came over and hit him. Grant was clearly at fault there, and I think Grant learned something from that. Uh, the Vicksburg campaign shows that Grant was capable of uh, brilliance and originality and improvisation. But now we come to that point here about numbers. Uh, which I think is a, a, a decisive factor in uh, evaluating any kind of generalship. Now, I, I, I don't agree here with Otto when he says that uh, uh, three to one or whatever it was. Uh, I think at the beginning of the wilderness campaign that Grant had between 115 and 20,000 and Lee had between, uh, depending on whether you count cavalry or not, 60 or 70. Now, that's not any three to one. Well, all right, two to one, but when you consider the kind of fighting that was going on there, uh, the, 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 the offensive warfare that Grant was engaging in, the firepower that a defending army had, uh, a two to one advantage was not always a pretty decisive one. I, I don't think you can say it's, uh, say, like a 200-pound man fighting a 100-pound man. Uh, even in, eight, in 1864, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia was a damn dangerous combination. And I can think of plenty of people, generals with two to one, that couldn't have handled them. I think there's some generals that had advantages like that that didn't handle them in the past, uh, when they were perhaps better supplied than they were uh, in 1864. But I think that comes down to the principle, uh, or this consideration, what do you do when you have superior numbers? Well, of course, you use them. Now, uh, if you have superior numbers, you ought to proceed on that basis. And if you and having superior numbers, you may have a you should have a totally different strategy than if you have inferior numbers. Now I commend Robert E. Lee for some of the risks he took with his smaller army. The weaker side has to improvise, but the mere fact that the weaker side has to improvise may may make the weaker side look brilliant. Now if you have superiority in numbers, you shouldn't improvise too much. I mean, you go around improvising then, and you may, you may get caught. Now, the great danger, I think, in the American military psychology, and I will agree with Mr. Eisenschimmel to this extent, is that, that undoubtedly generals like Grant and many, uh, many American generals since his time have gone too much here on the basis that if you do have superiority, you don't have to be original or bold or daring. Now, let me repeat it. If you have the superiority, you shouldn't be as bold or original as if you had inferiority in numbers, but that doesn't mean you should give it up altogether. And I would, I, I would agree with, uh, with uh, Otto that, 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 that probably in 1864 and 5, uh, Grant, properly basing his strategy on a superior buildup, um, uh, let, let his ability for improvisation go. And I'll use an example that I used last night, because I think it's basic to what we're talking about. And, and I think this, this is important for all American war, for our, for our thinking about the way we make war in any period. Uh, and it's, it is, it's an episode recounted by General Fuller uh, that, that came in World War II uh, when the Russians were pursuing the Germans over a river and the Germans destroyed the bridge. 
And, and these Russians began getting logs out and floating over on the logs. Uh, they began making rafts. And Fuller said the Americans and the English would wait for the engineers to come up and put the pontoons down. He said, just because you do have superior numbers, there's no reason why you cannot, you cannot be brilliantly original. And I would say that perhaps in our military psychology, we have too much of a tendency to base our strategy on the big superior machine, the big superior buildup, and to subordinate the, the idea of brilliance and improvisation. And I will say that perhaps in 1864, there were times when Grant went too much on the principle that he just simply had the brute strength. But I will say on other hands that he should have used his, uh, on the other hand, he should have used his brute strength. And I think that notably in the Vicksburg campaign, he demonstrated that he could use something else besides strength. Joe? I'd like to ask you a little bit about General Lincoln. You started to talk about him there. Uh, General Abraham Lincoln. After all, he was the commander in chief. Now, he was floundering around running the show and not having very much success until Grant came along. And uh, he was putting a lot of political generals into the picture. He wasn't doing a very good job. I got the inference from what you said that he was a pretty brilliant sort of a fellow, that this cordon plan, which he had had from the beginning, finally he sold it to Grant. Well, if he was commander-in-chief, why couldn't he put it over before Grant came along? And what kind of a, what kind of a military genius was Lincoln, and how did he get it? Uh, well, now, um, uh, there, there were several little uh, 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 swipes and side swipes and issues and side issues in that little statement, I think. Uh, uh, the the uh, crack about political generals. Now, uh, uh, I think Mr. Catton wrote an article largely to the effect that professional generals made every blunder that political generals made. Is that right, uh, uh, Pete? Uh, 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 justify, ju justifying the employment of political generals. But let, let's leave that aside. You're asking about Lincoln. You're asking, say, why couldn't he impose his will always on the generals? That's, that's what you really want to know. Uh, uh, here's a guy. He's a civilian president. Uh, he said, now, this is what I think uh, you, you think you ought to do it, and these professionals, these men who tell him, say, no. Uh, they say it with a united voice. Okay, what can he do? Well, he can kick him out. He gets another guy in who comes from the same military background, has the same idea, and this guy says, no, uh, you, 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 you do it this way. Now, now, you take a civilian director of war, particularly in that period when command arrangements weren't as formalized as they are today, uh, and all of his generals are telling him the same thing, and he said, well, if he gets rid of the one, he gets another guy who tells him the same thing. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's got to let these guys try it out. And furthermore, we know this from the history of war, that a powerful civilian director cannot always control his generals. Let's take World War I. Lloyd George wanted to fire Douglas Haig. He didn't dare fire Douglas Haig because of the political repercussions at home. He didn't believe Haig was a competent general. Lloyd George never would have dared fire Douglas Haig. It's, it's possible that a, a civilian director uh, uh, in a democracy, the prime minister, the president, cannot always impose his will on the generals, or he can't find anybody who will carry out his will. Pete? 
Would you step up here, please? Well, I know we're talking about generals, but I'd like to consider this man as a general for a minute because of the nature of the war. You haven't said a word about what I think is one of the neglected strategic heroes of the war, or at least tactical if not strategic, and that is Farragut and how he fits in with this military theory. Now, I know it's naval, but I still think it's within legitimate grounds in this case because it was a combination of naval and land affairs. Uh, well, I'll... Uh uh, get out of that one very briefly by uh, 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 saying I, I don't know too much about it, but now, um, say, who is this man at the Naval Academy who wrote this book, How the Merrimack... Huh? Lewis. No, How the Merrimack Won. Daily. Daily. How the Merrimack Won, which I think is an awfully good book. And I think that one big point he makes in there is that American naval officers... Uh, uh, partly because of the size of the American Navy uh, and, and, and of, of its, its, its duties, uh, were, were, were never given very much to studying any one particular set of doctrines. Uh, in fact, I think someplace in, 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 in the book he makes the point uh, that the naval officers at the time of the Civil War were remarkably free from traditional doctrines and therefore were probably much more fortunate, say, uh, than the generals. Uh, again, see, what does Annapolis start at 1845, 18, uh, uh, well, sometime in the 1840s? Uh, you, you, uh, formal naval education simply hadn't been existence, in existence as long as army education had been. So probably uh, uh, the, the naval officers were, were freer of traditional doctrine. Now, let me ma make myself clear on this business of doctrine. I think doctrine can be awfully good, but uh, I, I recall... Uh, a statement by General Rommel uh, when the Germans uh, kicked these green American troops around at Kasserin Pass and everybody laughed and said, ha, ha. And Rommel wrote someplace in his memoirs, he said, I didn't laugh. He said, I knew that once they got in there, they were going to be awfully tough because they were not tied by any traditional ideas of how to fight a war. And I knew once they got in there, they were going to fight it any damn way they could to win. Step up here, Mr. Fleming? You went by him fast, but how about General Jefferson Davis? Was he a victim of the tradition? Uh, well, now you look at Davis, and uh, uh, you, you get an example there. Now, I, I, I'm not going to go into uh, uh, Davis generally, or Davis is the commander in chief. I think that's pretty familiar. But. Uh, as a matter of fact, here is Davis, a West Pointer, uh, a man who had undoubtedly come in contact uh, with many of these uh, 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 patterns of military thought, uh, and yet uh, as a director of the Confederacy, uh, he advocates a strategy that is the, the, the opposite of the Geminian idea of concentration in one theater. As a political director of war, Davis wants to defend every area in the Confederacy. And I, and I think that uh, 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 there you get an example of how he's, he's placed in a, a position where he's political director. Uh, he thinks about all parts of the Confederacy. He thinks what will happen if he gives up one part of it. Uh, and uh, 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 Davis really advocates a supreme strategy 
That is the opposite of the Geminian idea of concentration. Now, I said that uh, for the North, the idea of several big attacks was, was right. Now, probably for the Confederacy, Geminian strategy would have been a good idea. That is, say, one big invasion of the North, maybe. One big overwhelming invasion that would have said, look, boys, we can not only defend ourselves, uh, but we can even invade you. Uh, uh, Germanian strategy might have been the best thing for the Confederacy. And, and yet Davis himself, uh, uh, this West Pointer, doesn't adopt it. And, and, and while I'm on that, let me say this. Now, I, I think here we get an example of the fact you can't lay down any one rule that will apply in every war for every country. Uh, there are times in war, I think, when the idea of con concentration, one big effort is right. And I think there are times when it may be wrong. Uh, and, and, and I think the weakness of uh, uh, professional soldiers is this tendency to take the one rule and apply it to every situation. Mr. Flax. Yes. Uh, I would like to approach this from a, a slightly different angle. Uh, we've had emphasis here tonight on shall we say, the Jominian or the, the military general's approach to the, first, to the opening years of the war and then to what happened in the last two years of the war. I think this is really contrary to the realities of what actually happened in, in this civil war. Uh, these generals, uh, whoever they were, north and south, West Pointers or non-West Pointers, uh, didn't enter into this war say, as they would have in a war between opposing uh, militant races that had hatreds uh, behind them uh, and such forces as to bring about the kind of an approach that, uh, say, Jominian or non-Jominian generals would have wanted to handle a war. Uh, here we had people who were blood brothers. I think it was uh, Mr. Eisenschimmel who said one evening here that... Uh, it, uh, this was a, a war between brother-in-laws, uh, something like that, or brothers, uh, relatives on both sides. When the northern generals uh, especially got into this war, as I read the history of the whole picture and uh, as I understand it, I think the last thing in the world that was wanted in that very first year was to bring war to the civilian population of the South. And I don't think the South wanted to bring the war to the civilian population of the North. I think both sides felt that this war wasn't going to last long at all. Uh, I think both sides felt uh, that if they could only take certain points, certain places, the war would end in six months, maybe in a year. But I, I think, and especially after Shiloh, when the, you had the terrific losses at Shiloh, I think both... The South and the North especially were horrified at the losses. Uh, to think that that kind of a, of a loss of human life would take place in the war between, shall we say, brother-in-laws uh, on this continent was something they didn't dream of. And I think that it horrified uh, the leadership, especially of the North. There was an attempt, I think, in the first year to try to, to keep those losses down. I think it wasn't until after two years of war with the losses becoming more and more terrific, that the concept of total war finally arose in the minds of men, so that by 1964, men arose like Grant and Sherman, who decided we've got to put an end to this thing, and there was only one way to do it, and that was by total war. 
I don't think this Jominian doctrine had anything to do with it at all. I think it was something that we now can sort of put into the picture. But uh, I don't think the northern generals, the northern West Pointers, even thought in those terms. I think they thought in terms of keeping the war, well, say as we did in this last war. In this last war, we thought of fighting this war in such a way that we would lose the least amount of human lives. That's why we had Hiroshima, so we wouldn't have to invade Japan. Otherwise, we could have gone after Japan the same way and lost four million lives. But we took sure here, we, we, had, we did something else. And I think in the first year of the war, especially in the North, I don't think the Dominion thing had anything to do with it at all. That's my point of view. Well, we'll dispose of that one now. Here we are. <laughs> uh, 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 undoubtedly, when the Civil War started, before it started, uh, Civilians like Abraham Lincoln, uh, a military man like George B. McClellan, when they thought of what this war would be, probably thought of something like the Mexican War, that it would be a relatively short war. Uh, it's remarkable how many of the Civil War generals, even until its end, did not realize what, the te what technology was doing to firepower in an army, how deadly technology was making war even then. But the Civil War had to be an un-Jominian war, whether anybody thought so at the beginning or not, for this reason. Now, Jomini, while he affected to talk about Napoleon, talked about 18th century war. And what was 18th century war like? Well, it's, it's what we call war for a limited objective, like the dynastic objective of the king. He said, I want to add lower southern Silesia to my territory. And I started a war to get it. Okay, the enemy resists me. Now, in the 18th century, it was awfully expensive to raise an army. It was a professional army. It was even more expensive to maintain that army before mass production. Then you get the Industrial Revolution coming in the 1790s, say approximately, and all of a sudden it is possible to supply the mass needs of a conscript army, such as they had in the French Revolution. Now, now... Coming back to these dynastic wars, if you, supposing you fight a war, you get this expensive professional army, you march to the enemy's borders, he takes up a position and checkmate, checkmates you. If you fight him, you don't have a pretty good certainty of victory. Therefore, you don't fight. Now, when 18th century armies did come together, the casualties were pretty heavy. But whole campaigns or even wars would be fought in which they didn't come together. Because after all, what difference did it make if you didn't get upper southern Silesia that year? You see? You could try for it in two years. In other words, it was not an important, unlimited objective. Then you get a war like the French Revolution, which is a war of ideas, or the American Revolution. Now let's take the Civil War. Now no matter what people may have thought, what was the policy of the North? The policy of the North was to restore the Union by force. The policy of the South was to achieve its independence. No matter what humane objectives people on both sides may have had about the way of conducting that war, those objectives could not be compromised. The North had a win or the South had a win. There was no in-between in compromise for either one that I see that they could have adopted. Therefore, it had to be a war of unlimited objectives. One side or the other had a triumph. And I think that's what made the war finally what it was. And as far as uh, uh, what Americans like to do, and I mean your example of Hiroshima, 
I, I think, that in a sense, the opposite of what you say is true, that in a modern war, it's the democracies who are more likely to unleash the ultimate weapons than a dictatorship which can manipulate its public opinion. In fact, I'm pretty sure you could document the fact that Mr. Hitler would have liked to have had some kind of limitation on bombardments of cities, of course, for his own advantage. But you don't think the Americans, the English, are going to fight any war in which they limit their bombardments. I mean, the fact we dropped a bomb on Hiroshima doesn't show we want to save lives to me. I mean, it shows we're willing to decimate the enemy in order to win a war. The democracies are more, more, more likely to use the ultimate or extreme weapons than anybody else, I think. For a number, for a number of years, uh, I've been hearing a good deal about the incompetence of the Civil War generals. I'd like to ask, ask the question, Dr. Williams, don't you think it's nothing short of miraculous that the generals reached the degree of competency that they did in a land or in a democracy or in a nation that was basically a rural, urbanized or ruralized type of agricultural civilization, a peaceful type of a, of a, uh, of a, of a nation that was not uh, war-minded as as distinguished between the European type of nation, which was engaged in wars over a period of three, four hundred years and had a background of experience upon which to train generals. Here was a nation that came up with uh, a large number of incompetent generals, but still came up with a, an amazing amount of competence and was able to move large massed armies and, uh, and conduct some rather complicated and successful campaigns. Well, uh, uh, perhaps, but uh, uh, well, see what we'd had, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, we'd had a number of Indian Wars. Uh, uh, we'd been in independence in 1775, and uh, in a relatively short span, we'd uh, fought one revolution, uh, two foreign wars, uh, in the process of subduing uh, uh, another race within our own borders. Uh, I'm not so sure that we were that uh, uh, peaceful, uh, naive nation you depict. Uh, I do think it's true that, uh, quote Clausewitz again, that... Uh, uh, a nation will fight a war that resembles its own culture or its own social system. I think that's true. Uh, if I may deviate partly from uh, the theme of the question and also partly to quote something against my own case here, uh, here I've been uh, criticizing Germany and by inference upholding Clausewitz, the great master, a uh, great exponent of the strategy of annihilation of the tremendous blow uh, Clausewitz's works had not been translated into English in this country before 1860. Uh, Jomini's had, notably by Halleck, who translated some of them even during the war. You remember Ben Butler's crack, that even while men are fighting and dying and bleeding, General Halleck is translating French pages at 
nine cents a page, and if you took those nine cents and shook, shook them up in a box, you'd get a clear idea of General Halleck's soul. Uh, but uh, uh, Jomini was known, and I have, however, found one American general who had read Clausewitz, the advocate of the strategy of annihilation, Carl Schurz. <laughs> I have uh, very frequently wondered why we ever had this uh, tape recorder. I don't recall ever listening to one of the tapes, but I think I know now. That's so Ralph Newman can know what the speaker has to say. He's in and out of here like a fiddler's elbow, you know. <laughs> but at least I, I'm informed he has a few pearls of wisdom. <clears throat> it shows you how careless a president can get in the last weeks of his office. <laughs> Harry, I want you to know that to be sure that some of the pearls of wisdom, particularly those uttered by the speaker, were properly recorded, we unveiled a new tape recorder tonight. And gentlemen, you all have 400 bucks invested in Harry's speeches tonight. And it was worth it. In fact, it's a bargain. You told us tonight, mentioned the fact that at least Grant and Sherman were aware that we were fighting perhaps the first modern war. And perhaps the big problem was we were fighting maybe the last old-fashioned war and the first modern war simultaneously, and some of these men didn't know which one they were involved in. <laughs> Sherman and Grant did learn their lesson. They perhaps always knew it, but once they became aware of the realities of the type of war in which we were engaged, as you so properly said, they shifted into it. I think we could perhaps sum it up that good generalship, like brilliant history, and perhaps more specifically speaking in the field of history, takes brains and knowledge, takes an ability to carry out your thoughts, whether you're a general or a speaker, and I think finally, gentlemen, the guts to do it. Thank you. <laughs> it's getting late, gentlemen. Harry, may I say that you have received the supreme accolade, not only tonight, but last night, our friend Bill Tierney has been able to stay awake for the whole speech. <laughs> but it's been a wonderful evening, stimulating, and I think we all feel like, uh, to quote Earl Wilson, I wished I had said that. Thank you very much, Harry. <laughs>